It's Texing 141 with myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And on today's show, our special guest is Guyon Roach. Hi there. Um, Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> so, Guyon is my partner in crime. I've, met, I've brought him up about five million times, I think. In- that would be Guy- Guyon. Guyon. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we just established in our pre, uh, pre-show chatter that I actually don't pronounce your name correctly. I've been calling you Guyon for the last five years. <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, in one of the uh, episodes back, I did uh, comment on that by spelling my name incorrectly. And <laughs> 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 with awesome. an E on the end, but um, uh, I, I think it was misunderstood, and, and uh, it just made the, the two of you pronounce it even worse. Wow. So. <laughs> yeah, because when we first met, I thought, I just assumed that you pronounced your name Guillaume Roche. <laughs> yeah, well, it is actually a French name, it's just that um, we don't say it that way. Um, but the, uh, my last name is actually an Irish name, which is why we, we pronounce it Roach. So how, how did you guys meet and, and how did you guys start working together? Why don't we let Guyon answer that question since uh, you've heard my version of events over the last couple of years. So yeah, Guyon. Or Guyon. Yeah. Well, I think, for, yeah, from, from what I remember, um, I was doing uh, freelance contracting in, in London and um, I was working on a, a, a heavy JavaScript um, project, and as such, I ended up um, frequenting a lot of the uh, JavaScript forums and um, uh, getting involved. And the more I got involved, the more I actually started answering a lot of the questions. Um, and then, uh, actually, this was before uh, um, you noticed uh, me, uh, Jason. It was um, it was a guy from uh, Jupiter Media. Uh, they, they they do a lot of um, web articles and stuff. Um, contacted me and asked me if uh, I would write some JavaScript articles. So I thought, well, why not? Bit of extra income. Um, and so I started doing some of that. And it was that exposure, uh, I guess the the kind of you call it the luck surface area, that caught your attention, Jason. Because um, I think you uh, were looking at some um, looking for. JavaScript um, solutions to things, and came across some of my articles, and that's when you contacted me. Yeah, so I that was in uh, 2005, sometime. I'm not, sh- I can't remember when. I think it's probably fairly early off 2005, and yeah. I was working on Prezo, and I had been working on it by myself for maybe three months, and the JavaScript was getting really heavy duty, and I was getting pretty good pretty quickly but it was still there was still a lot of tricky stuff and i remember i was trying to do the uh the text editing and that was turning yeah. out to be a real pain and in searching Hello. across the web i heard um i actually i read a couple of uh, articles that you had written and yeah. i and then i thought you know i should just maybe contact this guy and see if he would be up for doing a little bit of uh consulting work and so i sent you an email about about that, and you were you seemed up for it, but then mm-hmm. when we started, I said when we first got it started, I said, right, well, let, let me just share my screen and kind of show you what I've done so far and what I'm working on, so you can get a little context for the problem. And as I was showing you, I think I said, well, actually, you know, while we're here, why don't why don't I just do a little refactoring and you kind of help me, maybe help me do a little refactoring as I'm explaining the code, and then we just kept on doing that. We never, I never actually, we never got in the mode where I would say, hey, uh, here's a couple of problems, could you? 
maybe fix these or write this code. We just continued to screen share, talk over Google Talk or Skype, and um, and that's yeah. Well, I said I remember. Yeah, we kind of hit it off pretty much from the beginning that way, and just um, um, sort of took on that kind of extreme pair programming, um, and yeah, stuck with it. It, it. I think it actually worked out really well. Yeah. Do you find that it, it helps you through roadblocks? So where if you're on your own, you may be kind of banging your head against the wall, but when you've got someone else, they'll, they can give you that extra perspective. I think it does. Um, I think pair programming like that um, allows, well, it, it gives you two pairs of eyes um, to, you know, to spot mistakes before they turn into bugs that you can forget about, or um, and also two different perspectives. Um, you know, because... Um, we both have two completely different ways of, of addressing some things. And um, yeah, sometimes one way is better, sometimes the other way is better, and sometimes they're both more or less the same. But the, the fact is that generally when you've got sort of both approaches on the table at the same time, you can sort of look at them and um, take the best one each time. I um, think it's actually even better than working in pair programming in person because you have your own space, you have your own you know, computer, your own monitor. And um, it just allows you, uh, I don't know, some, I think sometimes when you're actually physically next to someone, you feel kind of isolated if you're not sitting at the computer, you're sitting off to the side. Yeah. Um, and you can jump back and forth. Well, let me, let me take a look at this or let me actually, let me, let me code this function or this line or, or whatever. And, um, and I think what guy, what Guyon said is absolutely right, which is that each have things that you're saying or, or ideas that can help fix it, solve the problem or, or whatever. But, um, the, the one thing I was going to mention too is, and we, and, and Guyon and I talked about this a little bit yesterday when we were coding is that, you know, you each have your strengths and weaknesses and, um, you know, Guyon is a really talented programmer, but he also just has very specific things that I think he's exceptionally strong at. And if I'm struggling with something, I'm like, Guyon, this is <laughs> do, do your thing, right? Do your magic because right. this is this is where I was joking. I was calling. I, I think yesterday I was calling it my graphics coprocessor. <laughs> <laughs> so we were doing yeah. a um one of one of my uh, I I have a client. Uh, I have actually it was funny because there were three three different problems we worked on within one or two days. Two of them were client projects of mine, and one was uh, I guess Epic Night. And um I I said. In each one, I was like, "Gon, could you help me take a look at this, or help me look, take a look at that?" Because I would get like ninety percent of the way there, or whatever. But there's just one piece that I'm struggling with, and I knew that either Guyon or Guyon and I together could knock it out really quickly. And mm-hmm. one of them was building a um, a uh, this new kind of Google-like scroll bar. You know, in Google Maps and some of the, I think I've seen a couple other places. Google has this really slick-looking uh, custom scroll bar, and I had it really close. But there was just one, in one situation, the scroll bar was not positioning quite right. And sure enough, guy looked at it for like 10 minutes and goes, oh, here's your algorithm. And, uh, and that, that just fixed it right there. And it was just like moving right, on, moving right along, you know. And then <laughs> the next day, I think I, I'm working on a company called Serio. And they have, um, it's kind of like a, U, a web UI for managing this distributed real-time messaging system. Um, and... You has to, has to do some really slick panning and zooming, you know, with like the mouse wheel and and panning with pulling. But the the panning and zooming calculations can be a little tricky, and there's there's some subtleties to it. And I got kind of close, but I was running to a couple problems. And again, I was like, I don't take a look at this. 
and you know, <laughs> he's like, all right, give me a few minutes. And he's like, on a piece of paper, he's like, all right, I think I got the equations. And that, that kind of stuff really, really helps. Yeah. Well, this is it. I mean, uh, it, it saves you sort of staring at the thing for hours and hours when um, someone else might just have the, the solution um, more or less in their head. It's, uh, it's funny because um, I'm beginning to sort of call a lot of your clients as, as my clients by proxy. <laughs> right. Whereabouts are you based, Guyan? Uh, well, I'm currently in, uh, in Oslo, in Norway. Uh, I was in London, um, but we, uh, we moved over here about three years ago. So when, when you guys pair program, does, does the latency of being in Oslo ever cause any issues? No, um, the, I mean, the bandwidth is, is still pretty good. I mean, we've, we've got 8 megabit uh, uh, connection here, and I think you've got more or less the same there. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I, I think some of the technology um, interfacing is, um, could, be, could be better. Um, there seems to be, I mean, we, we, when, we, when I'm doing some of the coding, um, we use the VNC software. Um, and that the latency there is is terrible. Um, like right. I'll type something, and I don't see any change for about four or five seconds. What tech do you t- tend to use then? So is is it just the VNC, or or do you so do you do VNC and then Skype run those two concurrently? Well, it depends on, on the mode. If I'm the one that's typing, I have to use the VNC. But um, if if Jason's the one coding, then we'll switch over to Skype because that is much more responsive. Yeah, well, we used to see uh, before I before I got my Mac, uh, and I, I had a Windows PC, and I used Ultra VNC. They have a they have a it's like an open source uh, server and a VNC client, and I think the latency and the ability to share screen and kind of co code was really pretty good. Um, but ever since moving to the Mac, we've tried um, the standard built-in VNC uh, server that's uh, that comes with. Um, you know, whatever the OS 10 and I've tried vine server and we've tried, um, team viewer and they all just kind of suck in comparison. They're all really slow into it compared to what we used to have on windows. So really, so you think it's a Mac thing versus a windows thing? Well, I, I don't know what kind of thing is, but I can tell you, it's just not, we tried everything that, that anyone suggested. Um, cause we've, I, I brought this up a, a number of shows ago and, and I had, we had like four yeah. or five suggestions in the comments and we tried everything, right. And I don't think anything worked nearly as well as ultra VNC did on windows. Um, yeah, I don't know. And um, we have faster connection. I have a faster connection because I used to have DSL and now I have um, a faster cable connection. I mean, obviously, my Mac is my iMac is way faster than, than my five year old PC that I had. So um, it's it's got to be the software. And I think it's. I think it has, has to be because um, the, the kind of responsiveness. I can see from watching when you share the desktop on Skype is uh, actually better than the VNC was on, on the PC. Hmm. Um, yeah. I can actually watch um, things being moved, you know, dragged around on the screen, whereas I couldn't do that before. Right. I wonder, yeah, I wish, I wish we could find something that was as good because it, it, it does um, hurt our ability to pair program because we used to, we, it, would, it was extremely, se- I mean, I, I, it was pretty seamless. So like I would mm-hmm. be coding, guy would say, let me just do this. Or I would jump in and we would hop back and forth. But now it's just kind of like, all right, well, let's go to 
let's go. Uh, if I'm trying to demonstrate some kind of UI behavior, something that's working, or let me show you, you drag this and this happens, we have to switch over to Skype because you can't even see it on the VNC. It's too slow. Yeah. And then, and then, of course, you can't edit through shared Skype, so they're going to move back to the VNC, and it's still kind of slow. So it's 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 a bit of a frustration. Yeah. Yeah. Um. We have a minor technical issue is that I can't um, copy and paste anymore. <laughs> oh yeah, that is that's a big that's a big deal. Because I've got a PC and I don't have the um, the option key huh. or whatever it is that you guys use. Right, Apple, the command key. Right, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if you could use a, a, a the the Windows key if that does the same thing as command, like if you did Windows C. Okay, so listen, I, I'm just going to change the subject a, li- a little bit. Guyon, I've got... Sorry, Guyon. I've got a question I want to ask you. What, what is your take on App Ignite? Is that too, is that too big a question? Yeah, One thing you should yeah. frame it, Justin. So Guyon and I have been working on App Ignite together for a year and a half. So, right. Uh, just for our listeners, they, they understand why you're asking that question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, let me ask, let me ask it better. So, I guess I'm just interested to know because we've we've heard J- Jason's perspective on the business, the business model, the reasoning, the the problem space, all that sort of stuff. And it'd be interesting to hear uh, your perspective. Um, do you feel the same, or do you feel any differently? Do you think there's other opportunities? What What's your general thoughts about the whole App Ignite project that you guys have been working on for the last few years? I think we're, in general we're we're pretty much in agreement, I guess, on on, on where it is and where it's kind of going um it's definitely um aiming at a niche that's not been adequately filled um that's for sure um yeah it's certainly a bigger problem than we first thought it would be um we still thought it was a pretty big problem (laughs) we still thought it was a big big problem yeah but we kind of had this uh you know plan to you know get it out there before Christmas. This was last year, of course. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, the, uh, but uh, as the deadlines approached and whizzed by, uh, kind of realized that this wasn't going to happen. Um, I mean, it's exciting now that, you know, we have a few beta, beta testers um, and, you know, things are actually sort of getting to a point where, you know, it's um, it's going to be something that that we can you know start opening up and oh, hopefully yeah um, get get some um, income out of it. What are your thoughts on the general the general marketing strategy of it and how best to kind of reach it out there? Because we we over the you know over the last year when we've been discussing it, we've been thinking of different marketing strategies. There's been you know going for designers, going for people who are inside corporates. Mm. Um, or, and or open sourcing it, all these different concepts. What are your thoughts on it? I guess a lot of uh, a lot of that question can depend a lot on your budget, um, which mm. I think you guys have um, been talking a lot about. Um, yeah, um, when you're talking about things like designers and uh, and icons and such, then you start to talk about money, um, and. Uh, you've got to sort of weigh that against how much you want to bootstrap and how you want to um, uh, you know, grow the thing um, either slowly uh, on its own merits or get investment. Or it's, um, I must admit, it's, it's not um, really my kind of expertise in, in 
that kind of aspect of of it all. Um, I'm, I'm perhaps uh, more towards the technical end of yeah, the so, spectrum. So even though even though I'm a coder in in, in our relationship, I'm probably more the business guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so and he's more the hardcore engineer. If you had to. It's interesting um, that you just said about the design and the icons and that requiring money, um, because Jason sent sent us both a list of links that he he you know he thought we should bring up on the show. And the first link is um, how our SaaS startup got a thousand plus private beta signups in just seven days. And one of the biggest things that they talk about there is he literally says design, 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 design. Talks about how important design is. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I I, I I've content. That's been my contention from the start. I think that the whole lean startup model uh, has pushed people to think that you can just throw out something that's just ugly and undesigned or, and, or designed by a non-designer so it looks even worse than an undesigned almost and that you're going to get a a real uh, good understanding of what your market thinks of your product. But I, I feel like if, if you don't show your product in, in a fair light, meaning that you don't have a decent decently designed UI, you're, you're really maybe not getting a true value evaluation of, of, of what the value uh, is that you're offering. So for instance, if you walk out and if you go to, you go to work and you don't comb your hair or brush your teeth or even get dressed and you're like, Hey, and people treat me kind of weird. You're like, well, you know, I mean, what do you want? Right. I mean, you know, go home and get a haircut, clean up and dress decently and come to school, come to work or school. And, and you might get a little different reaction from people. And, yeah. um, I think that you know, well, a lot of the um, I think a lot of the ideas that are being pushed by the means the the lean startup movement and MVP thinking are, are good. They're, they're legitimate. You want to be as lean as possible. You want to learn as much as possible as quickly as possible. But you can't forsake design for most products and expect uh, to really have a fair a fair hearing from your uh, potential customers. But I think the the real question is what's the optimum investment there? Um, you know, it's obviously if, if your um, if your site looks like a dog's breakfast, then it's not going to look attractive to anybody. But um, at the other end of the spectrum, you could spend thousands or tens of thousands and have something looking really, really great. But could that just be wasted money? Um, perhaps all you really need is to tidy it up. So that at least looks efficient, because um, I think um, you know the, this topic has come up quite a few times. I think where you know some of the big names out there like Facebook and Twitter and all that, they look like rubbish uh, on their first um, you know first offerings, and it's only after they actually gain some momentum that you know they turned around and actually looked at the design. Yeah, I think that's a very very valid point. So I think it just depends. I mean, it really depends on. The kind of product. See, the, see, what happens so often is in these discussions is you make a statement and people want to apply it or evaluate the statement in in in, in regards to all all kinds of startups. And it, and it just depends on you know who's your market, what, how much you are you charging for it? Is it consumer? Is it business? Is it for technical people or non technical people? Is it so obviously valuable that even if it's ugly, people are going to use it, or is it something that could possibly be viable if the UI was right. I, I mean, there's so many factors that go into it, and that's why if you, if you don't look hard and think hard about your particular um, product, 
that you get in this um, sort of cargo cult mentality like, oh, people say X, so I have to do X. People say Y. Well, you know, well, when they were <laughs> saying X or they were saying Y, what were, what were they talking about? What was their product or their company? I mean, they, yours might be completely different. I mean, it just may not relate. And another interesting example about this is Google, which have always been the ugly company. But even, even they now are kind of, they've, they've, in a sense, they've taken that lean approach by just being ugly from the word go. But even now they are thinking, oh, okay, look, the whole market is thinking about design, so we need to think about design. And they've, that's why they've done a revamp of their site. Well, one thing I'll, I'll just jump in, again. You, you might have something to say about this too, but I mean, God, there's, a, there's a whole different range of ugly, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> it, when you say Google was ugly, I mean, maybe, you know, the first six months or year when it was mostly just students using their Google search algorithm and it was sort of not, uh, it wasn't a big public thing. But even then, by the time I saw it in like 98, I think I read an article about it in Wired in 98, maybe early 99. And, and they had a, and their logo looked pretty nice. It was a simple thing. It wasn't ugly. And the, pro- and, and the problem is you, 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 you'll say things like that or other people will say things like that. Oh, well, they were the ugly company, so ugly is fine. You just go out and put ugly. But then you actually see the kind of ugly people throw up on as their, as their weekend project or their new startup. And they actually design themselves. And like, you're like, no, now that is ugly. That looks <laughs> terrible. You know, just take, and you hear all the comments. As everyone's like, yeah, you know, it looks like it'd be interesting, but you really need to get a designer. I mean, you, need to, you know, there's a difference. I mean, there's, there's ugly and then there's ugly. And you got to... I don't know. Some people really have no way of discerning what a um, the difference. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I can't actually remember um, the, when how ugly it might have looked at the beginning. Uh, I, I've always kind of thought of Google as. I mean, it's not elaborate. It's always been quite Spartan. I mean, really, it's just a logo and a text box. Right. Um, so. Um, so, I mean, I mean, certainly, I think they have been putting a lot of attention into appearance lately, um, especially with the push on this Google Plus, um, which you know, looks very, very polished, um, even if it's not fully featured yet. Um, so, but then, you know, they have the money now. Um, hundreds of thousands is not, it's not a, an obstacle to them. So, do you are you are you into social networking yourself? What do you think of Google Google Plus? In comparison to Facebook, I think the thing I like most about it is I think Google understands what the customers or the the people who want to network actually want in things like their privacy and and all those sorts of things. Uh, on, on using Facebook, I've always had the impression that that um, the um, they just haven't understood what people want out of their um, networking, which is um, generally to to know who they're talking to and to control that. It's ironic that they've grown to 300 million, even without kind of truly knowing that. That actually brings up an interesting point. Uh, you say 300 million, but how many of those are actually users, real people? Um, I mean, I, I have three Facebook accounts. Um, one is my, my main one, and two are test ones. Um, but I am not three people. Um, I'd be very surprised if there are actually 300 million actual uh, users. Like, right? Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting if you, if you separated all of the fake, or not fake, but just sort of duplicate or test or dead accounts, and uh, what would be the real number there? 
Yeah. You sent a link about that as well, Jason. Right, yeah, the, there was um, a um there was an article called uh, what was it? Type? Only ninety two percent of Newt Gingrich 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 Twitter followers are fake. <laughs> yeah, Newt Gingrich is there as he's a he's uh, he was a Republican um speaker of the house back in the nineties and he I think he's uh, I think he's a, an official presidential candidate anyway yeah so it was a story in yeah. gawker it says that not, you know there was a research firm that that uh is good at uh i guess understanding these kinds of things they went through the data and yeah 92 percent of his followers are fake and i think because you have a lot of these presidential candidates going around talking about how many twitter followers they have is it some sort of badge of like their relevancy or their popularity how many does he have um how many have he with seven hundred thousand or a million 1.3 million i think Mm. looking here yeah yeah and i but what what i think it happened in in his case is that and a lot of these politicians cases they are hiring um sort of marketing firms that and what those marketing firms are doing is they're going up and creating hundreds of thousands of fake accounts and and fake followers to bolster those numbers and make it seem yeah. like, you know, if like 5 million people are following this guy, he must be important. He must have something to say. We need to take this person seriously. If he had like 15,000 and he's a presidential candidate, it might look, seem kind of silly. Like, you know, this, this, this person is not, uh, not legitimate. He should not be taken seriously. So that's an interesting thing for both Facebook and Twitter. Both of their valuations are, uh, are primarily based on how many, you know, registered users they have. Um, so if, if it's like... If that number's being diluted by, you know, a massive percentage. Well, you look on Twitter. I mean, how many of your Twitter followers are real? And I don't know about you, but I get constant. Every time I see someone who I get these, you know, email notifications of you're now being followed. And I'm like, I have not written a tweet in like six months or nine months. And even before then, it was like I wrote like three. And I'm like, you know, some of those people I think are just are are texting listeners and um, and they and, and, you know, that, so that's a legitimate follower. And they're like, Hey, you know, they want, they want to keep track of what you and I have to say on, on Twitter. But most of the people are uh, clearly bots because it's like following 1500 people, you know, mm-hmm. followers seven. It's like, yeah, no kidding. You're fa- or the, our followers might be 50, but it's like 50 other bots. Yeah. But this is, this is nothing new. Um, I mean, I remember when, uh, Hotmail started, uh, exploding and they, um, would obviously, they would advertise how many millions of users they had, but I've I've lost count of the number of Hotmail accounts I've created just so that I can type an email into some um, website um, without getting any spam back. Um, it's probably about fifty odd email addresses that I've personally created and I've forgotten now. Um, so I think yeah, the 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 numbers that you hear are probably wildly over overrated i bet you i'll bet you if you if you carved it down for twitter facebook you know at least and you said we're only going to consider people who tweet or update their profiles or at least come and check and 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 read their feed you know once uh, a week or two um you'd probably probably maybe an order of magnitude smaller than the numbers we're hearing it might be like like 10 percent I bet you're if that's, not less. That, that, that's interesting. But yeah, it, it could be. It could well be. I mean, I like I know that I, we pr- probably all have Facebook accounts, but I I certainly very rarely log in and use it. I have two under two my two separate because I have two email addresses: my one old Yahoo one and my Gmail one. And my Yahoo one forwards to my Gmail, but I unfortunately I set up a lot of accounts 
based on that over the years, like my Amazon account, for instance, you know, and, and it's just changing your email address is a pain. And oftentimes these services make it kind of difficult to do that. So I have to keep it. And somehow when people, when, I, when, when Facebook was starting to become mainstream and people are were inviting me in or I'm getting invites to join Facebook, they would come to my two different email addresses. So somehow I have two separate Facebook accounts based on each of those two emails and mm-hmm. I'm kind of like split. And I, I don't, the good, the good thing is I don't log in either one, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but it's like I have like, you know, 30 friends on one and another 30 friends on the other. And they're just like, each of those groups of people just happen to contact me with one or the other email. So that's just, and I'm sure there's like tons of examples like that of how people just kind of get these split accounts for various reasons. One's kind of a dead account or whatever. So Jason, you sent me a very interesting link um, via Skype a few days ago, and you've also included it on this list, uh, email to us. Um, an investment manager's view of the top 1% of America. Uh, the top 1% of basically the financial. Yeah, investment manager's view on the top 1%. So basically, was he, he, this guy's in a, uh, like a wealth manager or, or, or that you would go to. And you, so let's say that you had enough money that you're trying to figure out how to invest and save your money. <laughs> you're not just paying down credit card debt or whatever. You know, if you make enough money, um, It'd be worth hiring someone like that. Just like if you if you if you pay enough in taxes, it's it's probably worth going to an accountant, uh, right. trying to do it yourself. So, and this guy, most most of his firm's clients are from the top one percent. Now, and so he he's sort of trying to give that perspective on things. And what was really interesting about it is he said, "Look, when you're talking about the one ten the the top one percent, there really is at least three separate groups um, that have really nothing to do with one another." The, there's the top 1%, the bottom half or the bottom 90% of the top 1% of the, uh, is really, that's like upper middle class. Those are, and those are like people who, so that, I think he said, so here are the They're number. earning like 300000 or 400000 a year kind of thing. Yeah, so, so let's say you have, you know, uh, yeah, let's say, you know, you and your wife work and you each make in the mid six figures or you're in your 30s or 40s, you're both professionals doing pretty well. That's not rich. You know, especially if you live in California or New York or something, if you live in a city, I mean, you're, you're just, you're barely getting, you're not, I wouldn't say you're barely getting by, but you're certainly not living the high life. You know, if you're putting money away for savings and paying mortgage and, uh, uh, saving up for college and stuff like that, you know, you have a, you have a pretty tight budget. Um, it's incredible to me that that is, that is the, 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 the top 1% that that would make it into the top 1% of, of everyone in America. It's amazing. I, I would have thought that it would be like 20% of people would earn, you know, 100000 or more kind of thing. Yeah, so let me read the numbers so that people know. Okay, so the average, uh, I guess, the, so the mean income in the U.S. is about uh, around the 50000 mark, $50,000 right. a year with a net worth of about one hundred and twenty k. And I think their net worth, they're talking about retirement savings um, and the, the equity in your home, things like that. The top 1% is a $1.2 million in net uh, net. Uh, uh, net, worth. net worth and about three to four hundred k in, in uh, pre annual tax income. Um, yeah. So the top 0.5 percent so is one point eight million net worth, and when you get up to 0.1 percent, you're talking five point five million. So there's a really big jump from that one uh, percent to the 0.1 percent, five point five million, and then the 0.01 percent which is really a whole another world is a net worth of 24.4 million. And so in, in just to sum, sum it up, he said that, you know, when you're talking about the, I don't know, the top, 
up up to the top 0.5%, you're really talking about doctors, lawyers, uh, upper management, accountants, um, people who've done, started small businesses and done fairly well. Um, but those people don't ha- have a whole lot to do with the people who don't actually make the majority of their income from their work. They, they make it passively through investments that they own. And so they pay 10% income tax, not 30 or some odd percent per year. So people who, who are making most of their money as, as regular income, you know, probably play between, I don't know, between state, local, social security, tax, everything, you know, closing in on half of their money goes to taxes, right? Whereas people who don't do regular income, but yet have equity in a lot of different, uh, or have owned bonds or stocks or whatever, all the income is, is, is taxed as, um, is like a dividend. So it's like t- as, um, non-regular income. I can forget the term for it, but that's at ten percent tax rate, I think. So, and he's saying that people who make, who have a a, a large amount of wealth, they can afford the expensive uh, wealth managers and the, and expensive accountants and attorneys, and they have a lot of their money is offshore, and they don't even necessarily have to repatriate it until later on, so they don't pay taxes yearly taxes on that income, and uh, it's just a whole different world. But it's also how how sort of I mean. How we, I guess it's it, it sort of goes without saying, but the top o one percent are so involved in legislation and just making making things work the way that they need so that they can retain more money. And it's it's kind of depressing from a couple of point of views. First of all, it's depressing that people that there's so few people who kind of control everything. But the other thing that's depressing is just that it's such a small number of people who actually make it. Like the whole American dream, the thing that. America's all based on, which is, you know, the American dream becoming a millionaire, like so few people actually get that. And that's kind of depressing to me. Oh, it's, I guess, a natural um, thing. Uh, You're talking about uh, essentially a a scarce resource and everyone is attracted to it. Obviously, there are going to be some winners. um, And I think the biggest distinction between that top half a percent and, and the the next lowest half a percent is that the 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 lower half a percent are you know generally the highly skilled um, accountants, doctors, whatever. They're producing their income by providing a a personal service, like you know whether it's um, doing one thing or or another. But there's <clears throat> I think that they're limited by the fact that there's only so much you can earn that way. Um, and that's probably why there's such a big distinction between the two, is that to get into that top, you know, 0.1%, you have to start making money off, um, you know, either by uh, having other people work for you, or yeah, by investing um, your uh, your investment or making investments. Or yeah, selling so widgets. Like, so it's, it's owning. It's owning. It's being. It's mm. it's owning something that makes income. It's not selling your time. So at That's some it, point yeah. you have to own you own and own something, and you know I think that it, well I guess the thing was most interesting to me about it is is that if you and they don't he didn't give any specific numbers on this so we probably before we make any before we make any too strong statements about it you probably want to do a little research on it but it's like you know we keep, we're so centered on like Silicon Valley and technology and we keep thinking of the millionaires or billionaires that have come out of that area but. And when you're talking about an aggregate on a numbers, the, the number of people who made a lot of money from Silicon Valley compared to the number of people who make a lot of money through Wall Street, it's actually, I think, small in comparison. And, he, and mm. the point he was making is that the, the vast majority of these people who 
have made a ton of money um, and are extremely wealthy have either made it directly or at least indirectly through finance, through uh, Wall Street. And so you could probably throw in venture capital firms through that because they're all essentially part of that game. They're just sort of like the you know, West Coast extension, right? Because you, well, you he's, also saying that, yeah. he's also saying that even, for example, uh, Zuckerberg, you know, it's the same for him because his true wealth has come through shares, you know? So yeah. basically that's a similar kind of similar thing. Well, even, well, you know, we're, we're, we're all talking about, it. I mean, we're talking about bootstrapping a business or something. I mean, you know, we charge, you know, reasonably high rates. I mean, I've come to realize that I probably undercharge my hourly rate than people I've talked to and everything else I've learned. But even at charging the rates that we charge and, and, and we're never going to, you're never going to get rich as a, as a consultant. You're going to, you might be able to save up some money and, and build up a nest egg and, and live comfortably. But the only way that you're going to achieve sort of financial independence where you don't have to be worried about retirement savings, you don't have to be worried about whether you're going to be able to send your uh, two or three kids to college. Um, you don't have to be worried about you know, whether you're going to have, whether you can weather a, a significant uh, economic downturn. And the only way that's going to happen is if you do something that, cr- that makes money for you and that's starting a company that can, cre- can increase in value and create sort of passive income. And the good thing about bootstrapping is that we can kind of earn our way there by we kind of, at first, 99% of our income is made through selling our time. And then it slowly, the ratio keeps decreasing, just like your case, you know, just with Plugio. I mean, initially you were learning, earning nothing or a hundred or $200 a month. And then it was more and more and more. And now, you know, on a regular month, it's probably getting close to maybe half your income, right? It's, it's, it's edging its way up to 3000 right now. Right. And so if you're not, depending on how hard you're working, I mean, I don't mean last month where you were working 12 hours a day, but oh, okay, I mean, right, a normal right, yeah. billing cycle. So let's say next month, let's say it makes a little over 3000 and let's say that you're kind of working your standard, you're billing your standard number of hours. I mean, it's getting close to the halfway mark, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And if you, if, it, if you can keep pushing on Plugio for another year or two and get the thing up to making 10, 12, 15, 20 grand a month, then you're, then you're in good shape because, uh, you know, you've replaced selling your time and then you actually get, you probably get paid more over time by funneling your hours into building that asset up than selling that time to anybody else. I feel like Rob Walling is the most successful person I know at doing this. Um, well, he's, he seems yeah. to have done a really great job of it with his multiple different micro, well, micro So Rob Walling, oh, first of all, for anyone who doesn't know, Rob Walling runs the, with Mike Tabor, he runs the Micropreneur Academy. They put, he, they, the two of them put on the micro, microconf, which you spoke at and I attended and he um, let's see, he does, they both do these uh, starbs for the rest of us podcast. So just in case people don't know um, and just this week, which was really interesting. So he, he was in town giving a talk in uh, Santa Monica um, and I, I think it was pretty much a, the same talk he gave microconf and he, you guys met and hung out, had coffee for a couple hours and the next day he was in Pasadena. We, we talked. So what, what are your thoughts? I mean, what, what, what do you mean he's the most successful at doing this? Well, I just, he just seems to be the guy who's like moved from contracting into um, owning, owning small businesses with residual income. He just seems to be really successful at it. He really, he knows it really well. He's written books about it. Um, so he's kind of like the, the poster child for that, I think. Yeah. Well, he, um, so a couple of things is interesting about our talk. Uh, you know, I, I was telling him he's like the Warren Buffett of like micro businesses. <laughs> right. That's, that's, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. He'll kind of like buy, he'll look at the financials and he'll say, well, okay, what is this business? 
or what is this asset? In his case, an asset is just like a very simple SaaS product or a very simple um, piece of software that is that is you know being sold like .NET Invoice, which I think is is one of his uh, is in is in his portfolio products. So um, whereas Buffett might spend one point five billion buying some company at his portfolio. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much uh, Rob spends, but let's say he spends like two thousand and buys something and turns it into something that you know generates or pays itself back in three months and then it, or six months, and then he's able because he understands how to do SEO better and because he understands how to maybe um, improve the product it, it, without spending a ton of money on it, is able to make it a much more valuable asset, and then he increases the um, his portfolio of assets by buying other assets and, and doing the same thing. Yeah, I guess as well when when you uh, have uh, such a production line going and that sort of thing, you're creating some software or service or something like that, trying to you know make something out of it, um, and if it fails, you sort of forget that you move on to the next one. W- once you've got sort of quite a few of these on the go, there, there's a high chance that you know some of them will actually um, you know burst up and, and um, you know make something out of themselves. It's hedging, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, this this thing I pointed out to him when we were talking is that he's a he's very risk averse. Um, and I, I said, like, if you're playing like you know one of those first person shooter games, he'd be one of those guys that would be just like peeking around the corner with a little mirror. <laughs> you know, he wouldn't stick his head out, stick the gun out of it. He's just barely gonna see if there's anything dangerous out there before he sticks his gun out or goes out. Where I'm like jumping, I'm like, let's just. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, no, he was he was saying that that any foo is is uh, in his opinion very kind of high risk. Um, although from talking to both you and me, he was saying that um, it, he thinks that it's a little less high risk after talking to us, but still, it's something much higher risk than he would undertake. I, I think that um, you and I are definitely shooting um, higher. I mean, we're shooting for what we what we hope to be a seven figure company. Um, I mean, we want something within a couple, two to three years could maybe make a million dollars a year. We're not shooting for something that's going to generate $30,000 a year in revenue. Um, we're, that's, that's where a lot of the products that, he's, that he has in his portfolio and are the kind of things he's talking about in his courses and in the advice he gives is for people who want to start something that's going to be up to maybe a, a 100K a year. Well, because here's, I mean, the main thing is, is that what we're doing is a completely unproven hypothesis and we're spending a lot of money before we even prove the hypothesis. So what, you know, the way that Rob works and this is his risk averse way, he'll always just spend, you know, a thousand uh, like, like max, I would imagine even less. I'm um, just kind of proving that something works, proving the market or whatever. But uh, for us, we will have put, you know, put our hands in our pockets and Spent quite a lot yeah, before we well, actually we're gonna have, it. We're going to have put in around at least uh, probably four to six k in design, and then the rest is in, in change. So let's say it's three k in yeah. change for each of us. Something like three thousand in change, and we'll probably have. I mean, let's just say to the point of launch. I mean, we'll of course put funnel more time into it, but that's really a pittance into the amount of hours that we funnel into it over a, a period of a year, and what we could have done if we'd spent that time consulting, right? So, although you are semi hedging because. Essentially, you're building out AppIgnite by building out well, AnyFoo. That was the reason that I was up for doing uh, AnyFoo is because I said, right, I, th- I felt like if I could have something out there that was a substantial product in its own right and use it as an example, this is the kind of thing that AppIgnite can do, or at least most of it was built using AppIgnite, then that could go a long way into legitimizing AppIgnite. Um, because a lot of times I've seen... 
I've seen companies who who say, okay, we'll use our platform and you can build stuff, and they'll have like a to do list and a task, you know, or some kind of silly little apps that aren't really full fledged products. And I don't think that really proves a whole lot to anybody. Um, so that was the reason, and it is it's definitely a little bit of a, uh, of a but. It, it may be a hedge, but I think more than anything for me, it was sort of like a two kill, two kill, kill two birds with one stone. Like it, it's it, well, working on any foo, the infrastructure, I'm working on App Ignite to a large degree. And if any foo create, get, has some, enjoys some success and gets some visibility, that will pull, uh, pull App Ignite along in its wake in terms of visibility. So it's your, your classic win win, really. Dion, what are your thoughts about the whole any food discussion and, and any food itself? I'm a, um, well, uh, interested spectator at the moment. Um, uh, yeah, it, it could certainly be something that, um, you know, in the short, well, in, in the future, I, I could uh, make use of, um, uh, you know, providing the service. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of uh, waiting and with bated breath. <laughs> To see what happens. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, um, I'd be very keen to see how how that goes on and uh, to sort of join in the ranks. Well, we're we're getting our first design back on Tuesday, so, which I can't wait to see what it looks like. So uh, uh, Daniel, who's our designer, I, I, he quoted us in terms of weeks. Like he said, "Okay, I'm two k per week," but as I discovered, that doesn't necessarily mean you know start on Monday, then we get you know our results back or we get our designs back the following Monday. He said, it can take longer than that. And he's like, I'm, it may take me a week and a half, two weeks because she has like multiple projects going at one time or overlapping, which I understand as a, you know, as a, as a contractor myself. So, um, but yeah, so, so we, we'll get like the logo. I think we're going to have the logo on Tuesday. And then I think some, maybe, maybe later in the week or at the end of the week, we would have um, what he termed the mood board, which would be sort of like a an overall sort of design thesis. <laughs> here's your logo. Here's kind of fonts. Here's the kind of color scheme. Here's some out. Here's what the visual elements will look like. That sort of stuff. So, but you know, one thing I was thinking about the other day is that I think what we're doing is kind of a, a half. It's a half step between what you might call like a classically sort of bootstrapped MVP type of product and a Y Combinator type of startup. Interesting. So, why? Well, because the Y Combinator startups are much more, I mean, they have, they're designed, right? I mean, they're not like, they, you know, so if you look at sort of like Rob Walling's uh, um, approach, which is, let's, let's call it, that's sort of like the, the extreme version of sort of the MVP um, look before you leap approach, right? I'm going to go out there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test um, Google AdWords, I'm going to create a landing page and see if there's any demand for this, and if there is, and I'm going to see if I can build something very, very simple and get feedback. So it's very risk-averse approach. Now, the Y Combinator um, is like, okay, well, you know, they're going to get work for, you know, oftentimes two, three months or, or longer, and on their product, get it designed, and then they're going to do a big demo and then release it. Um, we're kind of doing something similar in the sense that we're going to put a few months of work, and in, in the end, before I guess it's le- released, it'll be probably a few months of work. We're going to have spent some money on design. Um, we're going to have a fully functioning, fleshed out uh, product and business concept that we're then going to test in the market. It's not like we're just, ch- you know putting some sort of AdWords test. And part right. of the reason it has to work for us, which is a lot of the, which is often the case for like Y Combinator startups, is that it's hard to quantify the demand for any foo in that way. I mean, you know, it, it's, you don't have to put an, an AdWord up on um, 
and Google to know that there's demand for experts in technology. And, and, and you don't have to, and so that's sort of like a ridiculous test, right? Because we know tons of people, we know there's constant complaining. We know tons of experts who make a lot of money doing this. And we know, a, and we know even more people who would love to find people like that, but they can't find them because they're hard to find because they're all taken doing full-time jobs. So that we, there's no question there's demand. The question is, is our approach for m- sort of matchmaking experts with clients, is that going to work? And there's no way to test that on Google, a Google AdWords campaign. So one of the one of the things we've had, we've had a little bit of discussion about is this um, hundred dollar price point, this opening price point. And um, there was something I wanted to tell you about that, Jason, which I was talking with my boss about Anyfu, mm-hmm. um, telling him about it. And I said, so what do you think about this this hundred dollar price point? Do you think it's a bit high or whatever? He said, well, if you know, given the kind of business that you're trying to be and the businesses that you're trying to approach, if it wasn't that much, I wouldn't use it. Because otherwise, it would just be like Elance or Odes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> which, which I thought was interesting. Well, this yeah, is it. Yeah, you, you, you get what you pay for kind of approach. Right. Yeah, because the problem is if 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 if, if you don't um, sort of put some kind of limit, then it's quickly going to be people putting stuff up there for sixty, you know, forty, thirty, twenty, ten dollars an hour, and people who would who consider themselves elite experts, you know. T- they're not going to want to be on a list next to people charging 15 bucks an hour. It's embarrassing. It's just weird. I mean, if you make a high-end product, you do not want it being sold at Target or Kmart, period. It, 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 it diminishes the brand perception. It's a funny thing you say that because I wonder how the whole elite experts even being on the same site within a directory can even work in the first place. It seems kind of counterintuitive to the concept of being an elite expert. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like... Um, I think it all just depends on how it's framed and who you're next to. If, if all the other people up there are, are, are top-notch people, I mean, you know, there is the, the ultra top-notch brand name people, but those people you might not get. Like, you might not be able to get John Resig on there, and that's fine. You know, you get John Resig, because those people, might, they say, look, I am totally, absolutely, every second of my day is accounted for. I can't spend any time doing that, right? But there are plenty of people who don't have a brand. They don't have 100,000 Twitter followers. They don't have people lining up to, to uh, watch them speak at somewhere. But they are, they have maybe written a book or they have been a core contributor to major library. They're, they're top-notch people. People in the know know they're top-notch, but they don't have enough of a, uh, of a footprint on the web or they don't have enough people trying to... Um, hire them in a way that they could do the kind of thing that we're talking about. And so a perfect example I would give is my friend Pat Maddox, who um, is a top-notch uh, Rails guy and small talk coder. Okay? And he said, you know, that would be an ideal situation is to have a, enough people coming to him that he could work with, you know, do you know, a couple of pair programming sessions a day with different clients helping them out, and he could charge his top rate. But as it is, you, you don't have that money people coming through to you, so you have to take longer contracts. So it's rather than just like mentoring, you know, uh, two different clients for a couple hours or doing code reviews or whatever, you have to take a longer contract and working on a big code base, and that's not really ideal to what he what <laughs> a lot of want to do. Yeah, I was thinking along that. Um, it's a sort of interesting point about the, you know, the superstars like um, – um, or whatever, uh, um, you sort of have the spectrum from the top coming down um, based on, on reputation. And a lot of people sort of get 
the income or the charge the rates they do based on on what their reputation is uh, and how many people uh, know that. And um, I think what you're probably trying to um, what any food could actually do is is, is produce a framework for people to kind of share the reputation together and have a communal reputation, so to speak. Um, and you know that that could actually be sort of beneficial for the whole. Um, can you enhance? Can you expand on that? I don't think I fully understand. Well. Um, a lot of, you know, when you hear about people who make, you know, 300, 400, whatever um, dollars an hour, um, they obviously can charge that because A, they're worth it, but also B, because people know they're worth it. They have a reputation. They've probably got a whole catalog of clients that, you know, they can, you know, call up and or or, or <coughs> who are calling them up. Um, but for the sort of um, less well-known um, people, um, they don't have that kind of uh, reputation or, or portfolio to, to draw from. Something like Anythu would provide a, a really useful framework for them to sort of join in on a collective reputation. Uh, um, do you see where I'm... Yeah, oh, so, so basically you're saying because you're, because you're on Anythu, Anythu's the high-quality place, that's why you can charge the couple of hundred dollars an hour. That's, yeah. Well, let's put it this way, right? I mean, if if, if I said, you know, um, if I picked out like a, one of the most famous soccer players in the world plays for Real Madrid, you know, there might be a couple on there or Manchester United, okay? And there's one or two that anyone who, people who may not even know soccer, like David Beckham used to play for Manchester United, right? And, and he, he David Beckham doesn't need Manchester United to show that he's a great player. But almost all the other players aren't known outside of sort of the, the, the hardcore fans of the Premier League. But if... You said, "Oh, I play for a premier level take. I play for Manchester United." People are like, "Oh, okay, yeah, you're you're okay. You're obviously an elite player." So, so yeah, it's, it's reputation by um, reflection, I guess. By association. association. <laughs> I am. There's a certain bar. I mean, there's only a certain you know. Say, I got my PhD from MIT. Oh, that's all I had to say. You know, it's kind of like done. Got it. Chase, this is a, this is like a completely going on a tangent, but it actually because you are a, a good soccer player right and i i'm interested to know is david beckham any good <laughs> well yeah i mean you know he's he's reaching the end of his career now but um you know i mean he's been one of the most running uh, up into a new career <laughs> yeah you know i mean i mean I, I guess there's some hardcore soccer fans think he's kind of a you know it's like a celebritant type but, person, let, but he's uh, yeah he scored some amazing goals he he does he he was very effective as captain of the, of the english national team for a number of years he was captain i, th- I think i believe he was captain of man U for a number of years yeah. so if he was on your team say i don't know five years ago would he basically show up every other player on the field oh, on yeah. your team? oh absolutely he's just amazing i mean even on the galaxy right i mean the galaxy which u.s soccer isn't at the same level the premier league and when he's out there he makes a big difference Huh. I think his okay. biggest specialty was setting up goals. Um, so he'd be often seen on the sideline kicking the ball to the person who scores. <laughs> yeah, he can. He could hit the way he could drive in those crosses are, are unbelievable. He could, you know, they say there's that movie "Bend It Like Beckham." I mean, it's true. He could bend that ball. He could score amazing direct kicks. So yeah, he's mm-hmm. a fantastic player. I mean, you know, anytime that you talk about like you know how great this player is versus that player, I mean, there's a lot of people who say, like, oh, you know, he's not nearly as good as X, Y, and Z, and these guys, and then you know. There's probably legitimate reasons why people think that, and but yeah, is he? A, you know, he's yeah, he's sure. 
Was it, he was, yeah, it was about five to ten best players in the world. Yeah, I think it's hard to. Um, and but he's again, he's like in his mid late thirties now, so he's reaching sort of the twilight of his career. But even I think even after I think he left, um, he was no longer the captain of the English team and stuff. He then went on and he played for uh, Real Madrid and make it made a big and actually had like a sort of a second life down there and then did some good stuff. I think in Barcelona, which is another big uh, uh, Spanish club, so, or you know whatever. So yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. <laughs> Not that you care. <laughs> no, I do care because it's interesting. I've just, I've just never really known. I mean, I'm, I'm not qualified to judge, you know. Yeah. So it's interesting to know. No, the one time, but especially against guys like you, you, you and your team, who basically are kind of semi-pro. I'm interested to know, like someone like Beckham, who isn't considered like the amazing something, someone like Rooney or one of these guys from um, uh, Brazil or whatever. Just like how good he, good is he compared to your semi pro level? Well, That's let's let's see. If it, I, I, one thing I will say, um, give a, a couple quick examples here. When we this is back two thousand four, I think five, we played in the state champion all star championship against a team that was like a off season development team, a pro team, and um, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Um, help me out here, guy. And I've told his name. He was the he used to be the captain of the of, Ger- of the German Klinsman. Klinsman. Oh, yeah, Jurgen Klinsman, um, uh-huh. who was 37 at the time. He's still in amazing shape. The Galaxy was still trying to get him to play for them because he lived in San Juan Capistrano, which is just south of L.A. because his, his wife is from this area. And so he's raising his family in Southern California. And uh, he actually would just work out with this team. I just stay in shape. You know, I still love to play soccer, even though he was retired as a professional. But he played for this team, and we played against Jurgen Klinsman in a state championship uh, game. I mean, it was unbelievable. Now, would would somebody like yourself, who's not a an expert on soccer, come out there and would immediately look and go, "Oh, he's obviously." If I said, "All right, you know, you get five minutes. Who's the pro? Who's the world class player?" Right. Yeah. You might not have been able to immediately identify him, but the same way as if you were on stage and there was some big time uh, guitarist out there, and I said, right, "Which one of these five musicians is the uh, is the guy who's just sort of you know slumming it with us?" Right. Me not being a musician, I might say, I don't know, that guy? And he'd be like, no, that's my buddy Joe. <laughs> I think the other issue is it, it, it's a multifaceted thing. I mean, you might as well ask, you know, how clever are you really? Uh, if, you know, you just say, well, um, I don't know. I can't put a number on it. Uh, the, there are so many different aspects to the game or, or to anything, really, that um, – you have various strengths and you have some weaknesses. Um, I think uh, it's, a, you can say that, you know, he's generally, you know, pretty good um, in, in a lot of things, but um, I think once you get up to that level, it's really hard to actually say, well, this guy's best or this guy isn't or so on. Anyway, that was, sorry, that was a, a brief little texting diversion away from, from, from tech to football. Well, you're lucky I didn't go any further, that you, that you kept it from going completely off the rails, because once you okay. get to a topic like that, you know, I can go. So, so, you, so let's have a look at the list of links that you've sent. See, if, is there anything else you want to bring up? Or is there, in fact, is there anything, Guy, on that you'd like to bring up that you've been meaning well, there is actually one big bit of news just lately. Uh, I, um, I was going to ask how you guys uh, were feeling about this, the, the, the um the S and P rating of of the U S has been bumped down, right from AAA um, to double A plus. Yeah, uh, and, and I mean, yeah, I guess the whole sort of financial world is is um, concerned about this. Uh, um, 
it was interesting to note that you know China is obviously um, in the spotlight, voicing its concern. Um, but in actual fact, it's only kind of there with was it about eight or nine percent of that debt. Um, and I've read that actually nearly um, sixty to seventy percent of the debt is is actually domestically owned. Right. Um, but I mean, what's the sort of um, the kind of atmosphere? Um, in the U.S., because uh, that's not really been. Um, um, I'll, I'll I'll go. I'll answer that first, and I don't know. Well, you you yeah. you should because um, I don't know many people who sit there and talk about that. You know, right. who think about that. So, um, were you even aware of it, Justin? Were you paying? Was it even come up on your radar? I I had actually because of um, NPR. Um, I'd I'd heard something about it, but at the end at the end of the segment, they said ultimately U.S. U.S. dollars is where people feel safest to put their money, and there's even people. Um, uh, putting money in dollars and paying to put their money in dollars, so it's like negative interest they're they're paying to. Yeah. Know. So here's a th- here's a uh, uh, I have a couple thoughts on it. Um, one, you're seeing a a, a lot of pundit pundit punditry pundit punditry whatever. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, about who, who are, they're kind of going off like, oh, you know, how could they do this? And you know, and and you have a lot of. You, you you have a lot of politicians saying that this is ridiculous. Now they're got to say that because they would be like, we have to defend America. America is great. We're exceptional, right? So anytime um, something like this would happen, where we would say, well, maybe America needs to take a step back and think about its economic policies. Um, you know, no, no, you're not going to have. Unfortunately, you're not going to have anyone, or you're going to have very few people uh, in our government step up and go, you know what? We really, really need to think hard about what we're doing financially and not just talk about, should we raise taxes or should we cut uh, social security or Medicaid? Um, and then they're just going to point their finger at the S and P and, and say it was some kind of ridiculous, you know, miscalculation on their part. And, but that's just, that's just political posturing. Um, there's nothing that the, I, I don't think what the S and P does is 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 going to affect the market that much because all the people who all the hedge funds and banks and traders and corporations that buy government debt they already do their own research they know exactly what is going on in terms of yield curves and uh, and debt and GDP ratios and all these sorts of things so they make their own calculations so if S and P says X Y or Z they're like eh. You know, there might be like a day or two reaction to it because there's always a reaction of some kind in the market. Sometimes it shugs it off. Sometimes it drops. Sometimes it'll, you know, who knows? And it's so, and then people always go back, oh, oh well, it, the market went up for this reason or that reason, but nobody even knows. It's just total BS. People, it's total conjecture. So I think that the real players in the fixed income market, they know what they're doing anyway. So regardless of S&P, the, the, the political, uh, the politicians are just posturing, um, and but the one thing you can't say—that's what they do, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what they do. They just posture, right? They don't—they don't actually say, "Yeah, but actually, they might have a point," <laughs> you know. But isn't it more of a symbolic change then? It's just—it just seems like a very symbolic change mm-hmm. in terms of the the status of America as it's perceived internationally versus the real, you know, yeah, effective it, change. It—it—it's it, a—it's uh, symbolic, and but you know, you you could also say that um, it, then all of a sudden you could make arguments that. It's a chink in the armor. 
right? Because if you ever started talking about like, you know, we got to get this debt under control and we need to get our financial house in order, people would say, look, you know, the U.S. government debt is the safest place to put your money. We're AAA rating. And we've never been downgraded in, you know, the hundred and X number of years we've been, you know, selling debt to an international market. Um, people say, oh, actually, no, we went down to AA plus. Maybe we'll go down to a double A. Maybe we'll go on to a single A plus. I mean, you know, so it, it doesn't look uh, completely impervious. Now, and, and that's, and that, that changes the dynamic, dynamic of things. Now, one thing you would say about like, you know, putting, you know, the U.S. dollar still the safest place. Part of the reason is because it, now Europe is in shambles. I mean, Europe, the Eurozone has all kind of huge problems with, you know, Greece and Ireland and, and, and Portugal and Spain and Italy. Um, all those, all those uh, countries have serious um, financial issues right now. And because it's all part of the uh, of one sort of uh, financial entity that they have to all help to sort out one way or another, and probably it's all going to be bailed out by Germany in, in one way or in one form or another. Because that even looks shakier than the U.S., the U.S. in comparison looks relatively safe. It doesn't mean that you know that we're like this you know the rock of Gibraltar here. It just means that hey, these other options aren't even looking that great. Japan still is just sort of stagnant after all these years and whatever. Does that answer the question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what what's England's S&P rating out of curiosity? I don't know. I think it's probably uh I don't know. That'd be interesting. No, probably I if I had to guess probably AAA or AA plus. I think I'd looked on this. I saw a chart of this like a week ago and it had like all the top 20 or 30 countries and what they're Oh yeah, UK is tri- AAA. Yeah. AAA. Right. I mean it's just it's just basically a rating of like what's the possi- what's the probability that if if you buy their debt. In other words, you make a loan to them that you're going to get paid back in full. <laughs> that's the real, that's what the rating is saying. Like, what's our probability? Triple A is like, you know, 99.999, you know, percent or something, you know. Yeah. It'd be interesting to find out if there's a probability. There's not a huge difference between what the A's. I think uh, it starts to become a concern once you can sort of get way down on the scale. Yeah. And see, the real question, the, the, re- the reason that a government's uh, S, uh, bond rating um, is important is that it starts to affect uh, uh, your uh, interest rates that you can charge, right? So if if you were going to loan someone money and you knew they made a ton of money a year and it just happened that for um, you know a week they had um, they had been had a cash flow problem and they said, "Listen, Justin, will you uh, loan me you know ten thousand dollars?" You, you'd be like, fine, I know you make a quarter million dollars a year, you know, to get back to me, you wouldn't charge a lot of money. Now, if you had somebody who, who makes, you know, $20,000 a year and they wonder about 10000 you might be like, look, you're going to pay me interest because there's a good chance I'm never going to get, you know, most or all or most of that money back. So, but the more... Risk, the, risk return sort of calculation. That never, that's never made sense to me because surely if you charge less interest, you're more likely to get paid back because the person will be able to afford it better versus charging more interest when you're just going to crush them. Yeah, but it's, it's all to do with the risk. Um, with a person who's guaranteed to pay the money back, the risk is, is next to zero. Whereas if someone who's a bit dodgy or, or may be laid off next month, there's a high risk that you're never going to see the money again. So you want to um, get a higher return on investment to justify the risk. Yeah, why I mean, would you ever, I mean, if, why would mean, you ever lend money to someone who was a high risk? That's, that, that's the thing I don't even understand. <laughs> Well, if you think if you think that the risk reward ratio is good, so if you think, you know, if you can charge a high enough interest rate to where you think it compensates for the fact that there is a chance that they're not going to pay you back, 
you might say, look, you know, this person, I'm going to get 20% interest on this. I mean, it's the same thing with like angel investing or whatever. I mean, these companies are, you know, they're looking, what's my return? I'm going to put $100,000 or $50,000 into this company. There's a very good chance they're not going to see any of that money back. But if they do, if it thing take off, it's a one in a 10 and all of a sudden they get 20x or 50x. You know, they would never get that kind of return buying CDs. They'd get, you know, a couple percent a year, a few percent a year return. But if you think of it in terms of gambling, it actually uh, begins to make a bit more sense. Um, if, if you wanted to invest in somebody and you've got a 50% chance that that guy is going to fold completely and you're not going to see any money back, you're going to want to see better than double return um, so that there's actually, when you aggregate your, your chances, a greater than... Um, even um, return on investment. Either you get nothing back, which is bad, but that's, that's the consequence of risk, or you get more than double, um, which means that you win. It's just like putting mon- uh, your money down on a, uh, on a roulette table, in, in a sense. That's a great, a great way of looking at it. Yeah. So um, I, got a, I, I got a couple topics I'd like to bring up that are actually aren't Go links on. to things that I was thinking about. Shoot. Well, one actually was a conversation I had with uh, Rob Walling the other day. So he he actually said, he's like, hey, listen, I got some advice for you. And uh, actually, I guess it came up because he was asking how much money we were going to spend in total. And I said, and I, I gave him the numbers for the design. I said, ah, somewhere maybe between four and six K for the design. And I said, then we might have to spend some money on incorporating and, and, and then of course paying the LLC tax uh, fees, which is like $850 a year in California. Um, and he's like, and he said, look, I got some advice on that don't start an LLC, just create a partnership. Because um, an LLC, first of all, you have to do your filings. That's, I don't know, it's like $300, $350. And then you have to pay every year $850 to the state, which is, it's called a fee. It's, not, it's, it's officially a fee, not a tax, but $850 a year. And then if you make over a certain amount, it becomes a, like a, a small like percentage fee, like a, I don't know, a couple percent or something. But anyway... We would end up having to pay the fee eight hundred fifty dollars within the first three months. So we're going to be out like, you know, let's say twelve hundred dollars within three months just for setting up the entity. And then, and my thought was like, well, we need to set up an LLC so that we can then go, you know, down to Wells Fargo or whatever and set up a bank account. So then, you know, we have a sort of a company bank account, right? And he said, listen, you don't even have to do that. He's like, you know, for Microconf, he and Mike set up a partnership which is just a piece of paper, you know, we, you and I just write a piece of paper like, hey, we each own half of this, we each put in $3,000, you know, whatever, right? <laughs> and then you can set up a PayPal account based with our partnership name on it, so it could be Anyfoo is the name of the, name of the PayPal account, and it's linked to both of our individual PayPal accounts so that you can actually transfer money from that PayPal account, from the Anyfoo account to our individual accounts and without having to pay a, uh, like a 3 Three percent transfer. I think it's like money owed or something. It's like it's a little known thing, but that's how you can transfer money between your PayPal accounts. And then you just set up a credit card that's, and then you can get a PayPal credit card that's linked to that account. So anytime we want to pay for hosting fees or anything else, or we do tax returns and we want to, you know, have the company pay for it, we just, you know, pay our pay through using our credit our PayPal linked credit card. Uh, that's a great idea. Yeah, because I was like, you know, obviously I don't want to spend any more money than we have to, and I, I just thought that was. For our, our listeners who have startups and are might be partnering up with one or two people and are thinking, oh, do I do an S corp or an LLC and do I need a bank account? And it's like you don't need to do all that stuff. I mean, yeah, just do a partnership because what he was saying is like, you know, 
at some point you can then become an LLC. At some point, if we, if, 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 if let's say that any food starts to work, right, and we start generating some real income, at that point we might want to create an LLC because we can afford it because it's not that big a deal in comparison to the revenue, but also because we want to protect our assets. Because if it starts generating income and you ever were sued, at least you have the personal protection of an LLC because people can't come out after your personal al- a- assets if it's an LLC. With a partnership, if someone sues any food, they, as a partnership, they're suing you and I together as, mm-hmm. as, pers- as individuals. But in the beginning, we're, it, you, the chance of being sued is so small and so remote, and we, and we each have so little net worth that we're effectively judgment-proof. It would be a waste of anyone's money to sue us because there's nothing really to take. So, you know, start up as a partnership – let's say six months, a year, 18 months later, two years, whatever point where you're making enough income, you're like, whoa, this is a real concern. We're making some real income here. Um, you know, do the LLC then. So yeah. we're bootstrapping business entities. <laughs> but it's actually very, very common. Um, uh, um, coming from um, the UK, um, it's actually a lot more common for um, contractors to start up, um, not LLCs, it's, it's just called um, limited companies. Um, it's the same, essentially the same um, entity, but it's a hell of a lot cheaper there um, just because I think the industry is, is sort of um, built up around it. Um, but even then, there are sort of small sort of um, categories that, that you sort of slowly work your way up towards. Um, like, for example, you don't, you don't register yourself for um, VAT. Which, um, I don't know what the equivalent is in the, in the US, but until you actually have to um, and yeah, um, yeah, you, you work with an accountant and they, and they know all the little tricks of the trade and, and what to do and what not to do. And, um, so you have to be like over 50,000 or 60,000 or something yeah, 50, like that. 50,000 I think was the, the limit, um, when, when I started and, the VAT, yeah. and before that there isn't much point because, um, it costs your clients more to have to charge VAT because, um, yeah, um, it, you add that on top of your charges. Uh, VAT is basically for anyone listening. VAT is sales tax, basically, but it's called value added tax. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Why it's called value added tax, I don't know. But anyway, it just it's, it's, well, it's, like, it's, it's just a misnomer, so people don't think it's like the Patriot Act. You know, right? It's just, we're going to take away your civil rights, but we'll call it the Patriot Act. Make you feel good. Well, about I got it. a question. Like, what have you have you two guys had that discussion and considered what type of entity you would do for um, Appignite? I mean, to to for the financials. Given that you're in different countries, I guess is the is the question there. That's it. Yeah, good point. I don't think we have really fully discussed that side of it. We've we've kind of uh, chatted about the kind of equity side of it, um, and sort of generally quite comfortable there. But uh, I think that the mechanics of of making the business actually um, working. At, um, I don't think we've really talked about that, have we? No, well, you know, I mean, I always just kind of assumed it would be an LLC, but that's just another reason yeah. why you kind of want to make, don't make decisions until you have to, because you have more information later that might make it a better decision when you actually make it. So had we right. got really excited and like, you know, a year ago set up the LLC, oh, we got to get this LLC and we got to get the bank account set up. And we spent all this money um, and time get, getting all that stuff set up. So, and then we, we would have spent probably in excess of two grand by now. And uh, well, let's see. $850 a year, and let's uh, say it was California LLC. And is any, any LLC that operates out of California has to end up paying some kind of foreign entity operating out of the state. So it's, might as well just do it at California LLC. 
it's going to be in the states, and someone lives in the LA California. Oh yeah, I read about that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I guess I I've started a few LLC LLCs in my time, and I always ran up against that. I'd always go back and wait. Should I do an S corp or should I do an L- Delaware LLC or whatever? So any, anyway, th- there's no real way around it. So you're going to pay that, and let's say we've done that for two years out of a fifty plus the initial filings. So let's say we're you know rounding up, we're getting close to two grand. But then you still got to pay income tax, even if you're not really making any money. You still got to do some kind of a filing. So either you're going to do it yourself or you pay the accountant, and he's still going to charge you know eight hundred dollars or something just to do sort of like a, a what we call kind of a null filing. Like here are your K ones, your partner K ones zero. They're still going to have to do that. So now you're spending you know fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a year just mm-hmm. having sort of a zombie company doing nothing. And then you're probably, if you don't have a minimum amount of money in a business account, um, your bank is going to be charging you monthly fees of like, you know, 50 bucks or 100 bucks a month or whatever it is if you don't have like a minimum of 10 grand in the bank account. Yeah, so it's all basically a waste of money until um, there's actually a need for it. It's, uh, until there's yeah. a need for it, yeah. So it's kind of, I guess, the, the, the lean approach to um, setting up a business. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. that was all, um, you know, Rob Welling's advice. I have to thank Rob. And, 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 and Rob wanted to make sure that absolutely do not, under any circumstance, email Rob at softwarebyrob.com and ask him any questions about accounting or legal advice. <laughs> <laughs> he would get Rob really upset. Softwarebyrob.com. Under no circumstance. <laughs> email Rob at softwarebyrob.com and ask him any of these kind of questions, especially asking him any long, involved questions, because he'll just get really upset at me. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, listen, so you said you had a couple of things to talk about. Um, so the other idea, this kind of popped in my head the other day. I was thinking about maybe writing a blog post, but this would go on with my 50 other blog post ideas that I haven't written. Um, is in, in, in sort of researching um, uh, any foo, looking at other sort of matchmaking sites like Airbnb, GetAround, sites where you have two different, you know, two different uh, categories of participants that are a buyer and a seller, whatever. And one of them that I looked at was called Tutor Spree, which is a uh, Y Combinator startup. And it's really slick. So you just type in your area. So I type in Pasadena, California. And I find there's just like this huge number of tutors that are right in my area. Caltech is like an, a mile down the street or half a mile down the street. And then, of course, you got like, you know, universe, U- USC and UCLA and all these other colleges around. And you have all of these really, it looked like really high quality profiles for uh, tutors who are, you know, tutor anything from French literature to sociology to, you know, advanced physics or whatever. And a lot of them were not that expensive. I mean, it kind of ranged from like 15 to 40, 50 bucks an hour with a lot of them being around 20 bucks, 20, 30. And which is not a bad do for, you know, a college student to make 25 bucks an hour, 30 bucks an hour, you know, uh, tutoring. And I was thinking, you know, uh, you know, if, if let's say that you wanted to to not just go the straight up, you know, send your kid to the normal high school approach, um, you could do a combination of just hiring tutors like that and using like you know things like the MIT Open Courseware and the Khan Academy. So you have these sort of you have these uh, presentations of material that are really high quality, but you really can't do that kind of stuff alone. You need somebody you can go to who works with you and helps you through this, your sticking points and helps present things in a way that you can understand if the book that you're reading or the presentation you're watching didn't really um, spell it out for you in a way that made sense to you. Um, I would think that you could get an education that would far exceed anything you could get at a normal educa- at a normal institution. And plus, you could do it so much faster. I mean, And cheaper. And cheaper. I mean, well, I may say public school is the cheapest. Well, 
But Maybe. Uh, I'm just having a look at the Tudor Spree. Uh, having uh, just clicked on the, one of the subjects, um, maths. The, the actual rates um, are as low as 25 in some cases, but also as high as 125 I've seen so far. It's quite wow. a quite a range. Um, average seems to be 50 to 60. Wow. Well, in my area, I thought I saw it was a little lower than that. But but let's say let's say it this way. Let's let's say that you. Um, I guess this is all, yeah, New York, actually, <laughs> I'm looking at. New York, yeah, New York should be more expensive. I mean, it was much cheaper. Yeah. And, I mean, I would think that, um, let's say that you, you're, I, I was just thinking your kids going to high school, and let's say they're your junior or senior year, they said, you know what, I don't want to do the normal public school thing. It's it's boring, and, you know, I want to, you're like, okay. I mean, I wouldn't do this for, like, a 12-year-old or 13-year-old. I think unschooling like that is is a lot more work when they're younger, but when they get a little older, you might be able to do it because it's almost like, um independent study and let's say you're doing something like physics or calculus um you could meet with them twice a week right you do like you know two hour you know twice a week for an hour and a half you meet with a tutor so they you, you know they they go over all the problem sets that you're working on for, you know kind of working through the stuff you're struggling with and, and start presenting some of the stuff you're trying to work with you so here's the next segment that we're going to work on try to do some of this okay here's a problem set and then you and you work on your own for a couple of days just like in college i mean in college you know, you had to have a class at most three days a week. It'd be a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or like a Tuesday, Thursday. And you could easily do that with tutors, right? You could have like three or four classes at any one time, and you could get through calculus, you know, an entire year of calculus in like, you know, probably three, three, three to four months tops if you had a, if you're, assuming you're reasonably talented in the, in the area and uh, you have a good tutor, I would think. I mean, I remember I, t- I taught myself calculus in high school I mean, I was in ninth grade at the uh, suggestion of a, of an advisor of mine because he was a. I mean, it's another whole another story. He was a physicist and he was mm. this math teacher, and he was really, um, really interesting guy. But one of the things he did, I came to him at uh, at the age of I was a freshman year. I had been doing an independent study in um, in and sort of Pascal, I guess, and uh, and uh, I got to a point where the uh, the, the computer coordinator couldn't answer my questions. And she said, you know, you should go talk to Steve. And I'm like, well, who, who's Steve, the basketball coach? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. Turns out Steve was a physicist <laughs> teaching high school math. <laughs> and uh, I sat down with him and I started talking about, you know, the programming and also talking about these electronics that I was trying to teach myself. And he's like, hmm, you like electronics, huh? He's like, well, I'll tell you what. Before you learn to really understand circuits, you really need to understand differential equations. So you should go ahead and start teaching yourself calculus. <laughs> What? I mean, what is this guy smoking? I'm like 14. <laughs> and, uh, but I started doing it, and um, the, the, the gist of it is that I was able to do it, and I, I think I did a pretty decent job, but I, if I had had like sort of some good tutor would sit down with me twice a week for an hour and a half and, and, and really kind of keep me sort of on some kind of a structure and also making sure that I didn't get bogged down on sticking points, I mean, it would be, it would be unbelievably efficient, and it would be fun. But this is also, I think, the, the um, effect of having one-to-one um, tuition. Um, it's uh, it's that ten, um, yeah, an order of magnitude more efficient than, than having a classroom because um, you get the instant response to you know your questions and and um, you know, individual guidance, I guess, and uh, and so on. Yeah, and then of course you only go as fast as you can go. And if you if you get something, it's like oh, you've done ten problems. You obviously got it. Let's move along, you know. And if you're struggling on something, you spend a little more time on it. Whereas like in a normal class, 
you know, if you get a B plus, I mean, you haven't really mastered it, right? And then you still have holes in your knowledge and going to the next level and every level that you go that builds on it, especially in things like math and physics and in, and in foreign language, it gets progressively more problematic that you have holes in your knowledge from earlier stages. Yeah. I remember in, in, in college, I would tutor a lot of the people on my floor. I mean, not for money, just people would come to me and ask for help since I was the math guy. And I couldn't believe the type of uh, fundamental misunderstandings people had about some uh, algebra, algebra and trigonomo- trigonometry. It was just like... Well, this, is, this is the problem, I think, with um, classroom tuition is that they have to maintain a general momentum because otherwise, um, you know, the, the people who do get it are, are going to end up missing out. Um, and you're right, uh, as, as you progress, um, people um, get holes and obviously, particularly in, in technical subjects, those holes then... Um, sit underneath um, new topics or whatever that, that require an understanding of the, the building blocks that you're basing it on. And it, it just um, gets worse and worse. Right. It does. I, 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 uh, and, and if you can, it's, but if you have a tutor, I mean, you don't advance until you totally get it, right? There's no point in moving forward if you've got a problem on something. It's not like, oh, we have a whole class waiting way to get through this curriculum. It's just like, well, all right, let's just spend another few days on this and do some more problems and, and uh, talk about it a little more until you get a really good, solid understanding of it. You well, know? not just that, because as you go on, if, if you happen to identify any of the holes in the fundamentals, like, you know, you, you, you don't know how to do um, basic parts of this or something or other, you can identify that and go back and, you know, fill that hole. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, the, um, then it actually becomes not just more efficient, but also more effective. Yep. Well, you think about it, I was like, I was, still say, I was talking to Sandy about this the other day, and I, I said, you know, it's kind of like, you think of a lot of like the, like Alexander the Great, right? He had like his own personal tutors. Was it Aristotle that was his personal tutor? Mm. Is, that, is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Was, was Alexander right. the Great? Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that was probably true of most royalty and, you know, most of like, but now you could actually do that. It wouldn't really even cost that much. You could get uh, you know, tutors who are like, that's their thing, right? I mean, you go to Caltech is one of the top very top schools in the entire world is a half mile down the street. I could get some brilliant physics or math undergrad to, uh, to tutor, you know, my kids once they get into like, you know, maybe upper, you know, upper division in high school, uh, any type of math. I think it was fast as they want. Like, let's say like, you know, Colby's really into like, he's really sort of mathematical and analytical and likes engineering stuff. I'm like, all right, you want to do that? Well, you know, we'll, we'll get one of these guys to, t- to tutor you and do some engineering stuff. And you could actually do that and it wouldn't cost a fortune and it would be something that just wasn't even really possible or was hard to make happen in years past. Yeah. Actually, isn't it, uh, Caltech, I think, um, have put a whole lot of their lectures um, in the public domain online. You can just have go there. I thought it was MIT. I thought it was MIT. Coursework. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, that's but right. a lot of the other ones have followed suit. I think Stanford and Harvard, a lot of the Ivies have, and I think University of Chicago has, and I wouldn't be surprised if Caltech um, has as well. But, you know, there's, there's no I, – I, I listened to uh, and watched a bunch of videos. There was like a um, – I think it was electrical engineering. I watched like maybe a dozen of the classes on electrical engineering. I always wanted to understand um, some, of that, some of that better. I mean, I studied pure math in college and physics, so I didn't really – get too into that. And so it was really interesting. I was like, wow, I'll just have it on my, like, you know, my eye touch. And I'm sitting here on the, on the elliptical watching, you know, this, this 
top top rated professor give a talk on uh, electrical circuit design and stuff. It's pretty cool. <laughs> so we've um we've we're getting to the end of the show. There's one thing that I wanted to bring up quickly um before we signed off. Um, unless you've got any other stuff, you guys. But just quickly, um, have you guys been keeping track of SpaceX and Virgin Galactic? No, have they made it? Is there, I haven't heard any news recently. It's not like it's not that there's any specific news, but I, I just I don't know why, but I ended up on VirginGalactic.com the other day, and I was just really impressed and just how much you know how much more advanced they've got. They've done a lot of testing. They've started building the world's first spaceport in New Mexico. They've sold 430 tickets at $200,000 a ticket. <laughs> 86 million worth of booking. Now, talk about bootstrapping. See, those were people who were in the top 0.1%. I think $200,000 a ticket, you'd probably yeah. have at least $24 million in net worth. Imagine, imagine bootstrapping 86 million worth of sales. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah, but, but think, of the, the uh, think of the expenses. Um, right. <laughs> it's not exactly a, a cheap hobby. No. I'm obviously a big fan of uh, SpaceX and um, I just blank on his name, Elon Musk, who's the CEO of SpaceX and Tesla Motors. Right. And, um, yeah. I, think, I, think they are partic- I think SpaceX is particularly ambitious because they're, I mean, he, I mean it, there's a, there's a, I guess there's a difference between what they're really going to be able to achieve and what they want to achieve at some point. I mean, they want to be able to send rockets to Mars, but they are going to, they already have, um, I guess, some contract with NASA to send uh, for their heavy lift rocket. Uh, is going to send a bunch of uh, NASA satel- satellites and things for NASA to take stuff to the space station. I think it was called something like a dragon. I guess the, the, the biggest benefit I can see from this commercial approach is, is once you start commoditizing um, space travel. Um, that's when the real sort of cost of it all just starts to plummet. The amazing thing is, is when you go to virgingalactic.com and as you're browsing through the site, I mean, it looks, it, it kind of reminds me of an old 80s science fiction movie. Like you, you, something like, uh, what was that one with Arnold Schwarzenegger where he, where he ended up on Mars, Red Mars or something like that. Like you, you go recall. to the site. Total Recall. Yeah, t- t- total oh, Red recall, Mars, right. whatever. Yeah. So basically, you go to the site and it says, book a seat with us, book directly with Virgin Galactic or book with your local accredited space agent. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's just awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. There was a, um, so Virgin Galactic, uh, they teamed up, they actually um, did a partnership with, uh, or I don't know, maybe bottom out uh, with Burt Rutan's company. Burt Rutan won the uh, space, was it called space? uh, What was the uh, prize? The X, the X prize. You remember the X prize? Uh, Yeah. I think it was like a 2004 or something, and it was like the first, uh, first company, independent, non-government entity to send a uh, rocket twice within like 24, 48 hours, the same rocket into suborbital flight would win a million dollars or something like that. And the Ansari, yeah, it was the Ansari X Prize, that's right. And uh, Bert Rutan won it, and he had already set a record by creating some plane that flew around the world without refueling or something like that. And... His company won it. There was a great documentary called Dark Skies. I think it was our Dark Dark Skies or something. Dark, but um, and it was a like a two or four hour documentary. And um, I used to watch that with Colby all the time because he 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 really liked it. But it, after they won the X Prize, that's when Virgin came along and said, "Hey, we're gonna like buy your company or whatever, and you're gonna we're gonna put money in, and you're gonna scale up what you did um, to something that's more like a, a commercial, you know, tourist kind of a thing." So that's where the whole thing came from. 
So is, is SpaceX in competition with Virgin Galactic? No, no, no. Virgin Galactic is, is, just, is just like a touristy thing. We're going to send you these tickets, sell these tickets, and you're going to go up in a suborbital flight for you know, however long and then fly back down. Uh, okay. SpaceX is uh, they have created uh, you know these heavy lift launch rockets that are going to be sending satellites and, and and supplies up to the space station and, uh, you know that's and that's not suborbital that's orbital awesome so that's totally different um but they're, but they're but they're both interesting for different reasons I think you know but so do either of you guys have anything else well I want to ask you a question well what's the well, two things first of all what's the uh, latest on the juice diet have you been able to stick with it for a week <laughs> Well, I started on Monday. It is now day six of the juice diet, and I've lost eight pounds so far. Holy smoke! How do you feel? <laughs> wow. I'm feeling good. Uh, <laughs> it's actually I've I've been having this this thing um, that I've discovered is called a healing crisis. So basically, the the thing about the juice diet is you also go through this big detox. Sure. So toxins start streaming out of your system, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, I obviously had a lot of toxins in my hips. <laughs> I have no idea why. But my hips have been in huge amounts of pain for the last few days. Huh. Um, so, and uh, like just this, I, I can't even describe it. It's just like this kind of aching pain. Um, but after some research online, this is apparently called a healing crisis, and it's just toxins coming out. So um, last hips, night, I, huh? Huh. <laughs> so last night I couldn't I couldn't get to sleep, so I ended up watching uh, on my um, iPhone uh, via uh, Netflix. I guess five or six episodes of Friday Night Lights. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you're detoxing from that. <laughs> the fun, the funny thing is, is like, I totally don't understand football, but I still like that show. Georgie hates it, but I like it. <laughs> That's great. So uh, let me ask you this. I mean, how hungry are you? Are, are you going to be able to sustain this? Are you, you know? Are- I, I think so. You just, you just get so many nutrients from juice. It's weird. Um, just when you have the green juice, when you have, because it's like mainly, mainly green juice, um, I guess 20% fruit juice. And it just feels like a lot of nutrients coming into your system. When I feel hungry, I have a juice and then all of a sudden I feel extremely full. I don't know. I've lasted six days so far. Let's see. I, I don't, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic. I guess in some Cautious. respect it's because it's already almost comes pre-digested. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it, it goes straight. In fact, it feels like a head rush whenever you have a juice. It feels like, oh, yeah. goodness is going into my brain. Well, what's in it? What's in this juice, this magic juice? Well, you, it's just raw vegetables. Blended. I mean, basically. Well, which, what vegetables do you put into it? Well, it depends on what kind of mood you're in. So it's, it's almost like I try, and, sort of, I try and use different vegetables. Sorry, what you can say, Guy? You, you sort of take the will it blend approach with vegetables. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I try and, I try and plan it out like, okay, am I in the mood for something savory or am, am I in the mood for something sweet or am I in the mood for something bitter? Um, so typically, I don't know. In the morning, I'll have something like two apples, a couple of sticks of celery, um, a, a thumb's worth of ginger, and maybe maybe a couple of carrots. And then other times, I'll do something like if if I want to get if I want to feel really full, I've discovered if you have two apples and cantaloupe juiced together, it's like incredibly delicious and it makes you feel very full. Right. Well, um, yeah, that was kind of one of the things I was wondering about it when you um, talked about this. Um, was it a week ago? Um, that um, how the whole thing worked. That it, it sort of seemed by juicing all these things, it kind of made the thing unappealing, and that's how you lost the weight. Uh, but I guess it doesn't work that way. I don't know. I mean, for me, the reason why I think I'm sticking to it is well, okay. One, there's there's a few different reasons. Firstly, 
Jason sent me this link about the 600 calorie a day diet, getting rid of diabetes. So I was kind of interested in that, mm. but then also um, it's, you know, seeing, seeing the, some kind of result. I know that it's probably just water or whatever, but I've lost eight pounds in, in five days or six days. That feels good. Um, apart from the, the pain of the, <laughs> the weird, the, the, it, it generally feels good. But um, another weird thing happened was the day before the juice diet, and this Jason's going to roll his eyes at this, I know. But anyway, the, Jace, the, the day before the, the juice diet, we went out for a Chinese meal. It was my last meal. and um, <laughs> The last supper. Had, yeah, the last <laughs> supper. And it was, I, I mean, I love Chinese, right? I really love it. But anyway, we, got, we all got our uh, fortune cookies at the end of the meal. And mine said, and I, I'm not kidding, on the fortune cookie, it said juice. <laughs> That's all it said? Juice? <laughs> it said, no, it was basically learn, you know, it's like learn Chinese. So it's like learn Chinese, but the word was juice. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, this, I mean, if that's not a sign, I don't know what is. <laughs> well, good. Whatever, whatever, you know, whatever makes you want to stick to it. I think that's great. Yeah. So I think someone had suggested um, on, the, on the comments about, you know, exercising or whatever, but it sounds like when your hips are feeling better, you're not having physical pain. The one thing you might want to do just to sort of start itching, inching towards physical activity is just going on a daily walk for like 15 minutes. I'm pretty much doing that because, uh, like you can't really stock up on a lot of vegetables and keep them fresh and I don't have a car. So or what I have to do is I have to walk down to the market every time. So I'm, you know, a couple of times a day, I'm kind of doing a five minute walk one way and, and back. So I guess I'm doing 20 minutes a day as it stands. Oh, that's uh, good. That's actually, yeah, it's good. That, that kind of fits in line with um, my approach to this whole thing is, is try and fit exercise in with a purpose. Um, like I, I do cycling a lot. I, I cycle to work every day. Um, and pop, a lot of people here think I'm, I'm barmy um, because I do it through the winter as well. Uh, and uh, if you know, um, living here in, in Norway, um, the snow gets quite deep. Um, and, How do you even cycle in in deep snow? I've got um, metal spikes in my uh, cycle tires. <laughs> I've never heard cool. of that. That's really cool. Yeah, but um, and yeah, I'm I'm battling temperatures of minus twenty three sometimes. <laughs> but this is it. Uh, you know, if you're dressed well enough, it's not actually that much of a problem. But the the big deal is is that um, I don't notice the fact that I'm doing exercise, even though I'm cycling about a hundred kilometers a week. Um, it's because that's how I get to work. Um, right. So, and um, when you can fit exercises in, into your sort of daily routine, um, disguised as other purposes, you can get quite a lot of um, you know, physical exercise in there um, without even really noticing. Yeah. No, it's good. It's like, well, I think what's the key is for exercise and everything. It's all about diet. I mean, it's all about routine. You know, if you have a routine mm -hmm. that's convenient and manageable, then you can keep it up. If you don't, then it's it's, it's gonna it's gonna last like two weeks. And you know, for you, uh, you know, obviously, if it's integrated into like a something you have to do anyway, then it's great. You know, um, you know, it's like, but if like for instance, let's say you like go to the gym, but there's no gym that's with that's close by or you have to go home first and then change after work and then go drive somewhere. That just becomes inconvenient enough that you don't do it. And uh, I don't know. Anything you can make in terms of routine is it's the best way to maintain. Yeah. Sorry, I just realized that I just said the, um, the temperature uh, in Celsius. I guess you guys don't work that way. Um, but by minus 23, I actually mean minus 9 Fahrenheit. 
It's still right. yeah, pretty cold. <laughs> that's still cold. Not that's still cold. Yeah, well, that's good. And the other question I want to ask uh, Justin is uh, Plugio. Let's get a Plugio update real quick. Oh yeah. Um, not not too much to report on Plugio. Um, other than this, the the first six days this month, for some reason, a lot more people are signing up. Um, I, after discussing it with Rob, I I kind of showed him my stats, and he thinks um he's he's had an experience like this before where. Uh, uh, some aspect of the system has broken. So, you know, like some part of the sites come down, some part of the funnel. And I, I have had a couple of issues, like one of them's uh, like an, an email wasn't going out and another database issue. And I think that basically both of those together may, and also coupled with summer may reveal why it was only half a user signing up per day for last month. Right. But anyway, this month it's back on regular track so far first week and it's two users a day. So we'll see. Well, that's great. Um, and just great. and also, so Rob and Mike are coming on the show on Wednesday. We're doing a Texing versus startups for the rest of us podcast, <laughs> right? Yeah, SmackDown. <laughs> what kind of reminds me? I remember seeing it was like um, it was like NYPD Blue and Homicide. I can't remember it was a two show. It was a two cop shows, both based in New York, and they actually like combined the show. I think I don't even sure if they were on the same network, but they had the actors play their characters, and they kind of come into the other. The other, the world of the other characters, that was kind of cool. So that's kind of, kind of what we're doing. So uh, yeah, that's going to be really cool talking to uh, Rob and Mike. Uh, well, guy, on I must say it's it's really great to meet you for the first time after hearing about you for two, for almost <laughs> two years. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, yes, yeah, so it's likewise. It's um, it's been. I think I, I mentioned that before that we started. Um, it's been very interesting to actually talk to you in real time rather than <laughs> listening to you. <laughs> Yeah, it was cool. Bring him on. I, well, you know, you you had asked just you had asked about bringing guy on a, a, a while back, and I just kept forgetting to uh, make it happen. So I'm glad uh, glad it was able to happen today. Finally, um, mm-hmm. really uh, cool. So um, I must yeah. admit, I, I mean, I had a little bit of apprehension uh, <laughs> coming in, into the podcast because um, uh, it's like um, you get the feeling that. Yeah, you got to say something, and the only thing you can think of is, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless you're Jason, and the only thing you can think of is. Don't worry, I will fill all the whole bandwidth. I'm like water, you know, just like. No, that that was good because um, you know, when Rob came and spoke to both of us, um, the good the good thing is he he got to see the different sides of us, and I think he he told you that he didn't realize just how different we were, Jason. Right, you and me. And I think that what he's really seen is is how effective you are as as a partner in the show like this because you do fill up the dead air in a great way. <laughs> well, yeah. it's, it's a little bit like the the wall of sound. There's never going to be a sort of extended period of silence because <laughs> I, I have to hold myself back. To, like there's a couple of times where Justin asked a question. I was like, oh, "Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Let Guy on talk." <laughs> No, but also another another thing uh, Guyon said before the show, which was interesting, is that um, he's probably one of the only people who hears you not talk because you you guys are actually working. That's right. Yeah, I have the the u- unique um, experience of, of uh, having a Skype call to Jason and hearing silence. Yeah, <laughs> silent. This is silent Jason. <laughs> rarely seen, rarely heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, as I've said, uh, I may talk a lot, but my sister, you've never seen anything like her go. She's the <laughs> only person I've met in my life who speaks breathing in and... We have to get her on the show. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, it would just be na- it would just be the Natalie show. It wouldn't really. You and I would just be kind of like. Hey, what does she do for a living? She's a doctor. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So maybe we'll try and we'll try and hook it in with some kind of <laughs> just doc- as people get a taste. Of yeah. What that's like. Yeah. yeah. Oh, people are like. Oh, wow. Jason really is kind of a quiet guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, so I think that's I think that's the show. Yeah. What do you guys yeah. Think? Well, well, guy, we'll get you on again uh, sometime too. It's it's kind of fun. Oh, yeah. Um, like our friends who are who happen to also be in the business or working on us on pro- with us on projects. Like we had Phil on my who was a partner in my first startup. We had him on a couple we times. Alex Gemmel from London. Alex, your buddy. Yeah. So um yeah yeah. So get, we maybe something more no, something new and interesting happens with Epic Night. We can bring that on and we'll make that one of our key topics or something cool all right that's a wrap we're out